0: Chapter Three of Mother. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mother, by Kathleen Norris, Chapter Three. On the days that followed, the miracle came to be accepted by all Weston, which was much excited for a day or two over this honor done a favorite daughter, and by all the Pagets except Margaret margaret went through the hours in her old quiet manner a little more tender and gentle perhaps than she had been but her heart never beat normally and she lay awake late at night and early in the morning thinking 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 she tried to realize that it was in her honor that a farewell tea was planned at the club it was for her that her fellow teachers were planning a good-bye luncheon it was really she margaret paget whose voice said at the telephone a dozen times a day on the fourteenth Oh, do I? I don't feel calm. Can't you try to come in? I do want to see you before I go. She dutifully repeated Bruce's careful directions. She was to give her check to an expressman, and her suitcase to a red cap. The expressman would probably charge fifty cents, the red cap was to have no more than fifteen, and she was to tell the latter to put her into a taxicab. I'll remember, Margaret assured him gratefully, but with a sense of unreality pressing almost painfully upon her one of a million ordinary school teachers in a million little towns, and this marvel had befallen her. The night of the Pagets' Christmas play came, a night full of laughter and triumph, and marked for Margaret by the little parting gifts that were slipped into her hands, and by the warm good wishes that were murmured, not always steadily, by this old friend and that. When the time came to distribute plates and paper napkins, and great saucers of ice cream and sliced cake, Margaret was toasted in cold sweet lemonade, and drawing close to harmonize more perfectly the circle about her touched their glasses while they sang for she's a jolly good fellow later when the little supper was almost over Ethel elliott leaning over to lay her hand on margaret's began in her rich contralto when other lips and other hearts and as they all went seriously through the two verses they stood up one by one in linked arms the little circle affectionate and admiring that had bounded Margaret's friendships until now then Christmas came with a dark freezing walk to the pine spiced and candle lighted early service in the little church and a quicker walk home chilled and happy and hungry to a riotous Christmas breakfast and a littered breakfast table the New Year came with a dance and revel and the pageants took one of their long tramps through the snowy afternoon and came back hungry for a big dinner then there was dressmaking Mrs. Schmidt in command, Mrs. Paget tireless at the machine, Julie, all eager interest. Margaret, patiently standing to be fitted, conscious of the icy wet touch of Mrs. Smith's red fingers on her bare arms, dreaming like he as to buttons or hooks, was truly absent in spirit. A trunk came, Mr Paget very anxious that the key should not be fooled with by the children. Margaret's mother packed this trunk scientifically. No, now the shoes, Mark, now that heavy skirt, she would say. "'Run get Mother some more tissue paper Beck. "'You'll have to leave the big cape, dear, "'and you can send for it if you need it. "'Now the blue dress, Jew. "'I think that dyed so prettily. "'Just the thing for mornings. "'And here's your prayer book in the tray, dear. "'If you go Saturday, you'll want it first thing in the morning. "'See, I'll put a fresh handkerchief in it.' "'Margaret, relaxed and idle in a rocker, "'with Duncan on her lap, busily working at her locket, "'would say over and over, "'You're all such angels. I'll never forget it.' "'And wish that.' knowing how sincerely she meant it, she could feel it a little more. Conversation languished in these days, mother and daughters feeling that time was too precious to waste speech of little things, and that their hearts were too full to touch upon the great change impending. A night came when the pageants went early upstairs, saying that, after all, it was not like people marrying and going to Russia, it was not like a real parting. It wasn't as if Mark couldn't come home again in four hours if anything went wrong in either end of the line." Margaret's heart was beating high and quick now. She tried to show some of the love and sorrow she knew she should have felt. She knew that she did feel under the hurry of her blood that made speech impossible. She went to her mother's door, slender and girlish in her white nightgown, to kiss her good-night again. Mrs. Paget's big arms went about her daughter. Margaret laid her head childishly on her mother's shoulder. Nothing of significance was said. Margaret whispered, Mother, I love you. Her mother said, You were such a little thing, Mark, when I kissed you one day, without hugging you. And you said, Please don't love me with just your face, Mother. Love me with your heart. Then she added, Did you and Julie get that extra blanket down today, dear? It's going to be very cold. Margaret nodded. Good night, little girl. Good night, Mother. That was the real farewell, for the next morning was all confusion. They dressed hurriedly by chilly gaslight. Clocks were compared. Rebecca's back buttoned. Duncan's overcoat jerked on, coffee drunk scalding hot as they stood about the kitchen table, bread barely tasted. They walked to the railway station on wet sidewalks under a broken sky, Bruce with Margaret's suitcase in the lead. Weston was asleep in the gray morning after the storm. Far and near belated cocks were crowing. A score of old friends met Margaret at the train. There were gifts, promises, good wishes. There came a moment when it was generally felt that the pageant should be left alone now, THE FAR WHISTLE OF THE TRAIN BEYOND THE BRIDGE, THE BEGINNING OF THE GOODBYES, A SUDDEN FILLING OF HER MOTHER'S EYES THAT WAS BELIED BY HER SMILE. GOOD-BYE, SWEETEST. DON'T KNOCK MY hat OFF, BABY DEAR. BECK DARLING. OH, Jew, DO, DON'T JUST SAY IT. START ME A LETTER TONIGHT. ALL WRITE TO ME. GOOD-BYE, DAD, DARLING. ALL RIGHT, BRUCE, I'LL GET IN. ANOTHER FOR DAD. GOOD-BYE, MOTHER DARLING. GOOD-BYE. GOOD-BYE. THEN FOR THE Pagets. THERE WAS A WALK BACK TO THE EMPTY DISORDER OF THE HOUSE. Julie very talkative at her father's side, Bruce walking far behind the others with his mother, and the day's familiar routine to be somehow gone through without Margaret. But for Margaret, settling herself comfortably in the grateful warmth of the train, and watching the uncertain early sunshine brighten unfamiliar fields and farmhouses, every brilliant possibility in life seemed to be waiting. She tried to read, to think, to pray, to stare steadily out of the window. She could do nothing for more than a moment at a time. Her thoughts went backward and forward like a weaving shuttle. How good they've all been to me, how grateful I am. Now if only, only I could make good. Look out for the servants. Julie, from the depth of her sixteen-years-old wisdom, had warned her sister. The governess will hate you because she'll be afraid you'll cut her out, and Mrs. Carbolt's maid will be a cat. They always are in books. Margaret had laughed at this advice, but in her heart she rather believed it. Her new work seemed so enchanting to her that it was not easy to believe that she did not stand in somebody's light. She was glad that by a last-moment arrangement she was to arrive at the Grand Central Station at almost the same moment as Mrs. Carbolt herself, who was coming home from a three-weeks visit in the Middle West. Margaret gave only half her attention to the flying country that was beginning to shape itself into streets and rows of houses. All the last half-hour of the trip was clouded by the nervous fear that she would somehow fail to find Mrs. Carbolt in the confusion at the railroad terminal. But happily enough the lady was found without trouble, or rather Margaret was found, felt an authoritative tap on her shoulder, caught a breath of fresh violets, and a glimpse of her patron's clear-skinned, resolute face. They whirled through wet, deserted streets, Mrs. Carbolt gracious and talkative, Margaret nervously interested and amused. Their wheels presently grated against a curb, a man in livery opened the limousine door. Margaret saw an immense stone mansion facing the park, climbed a dazzling flight of wide steps. And was in a great hall that faced an interior court, where there were Florentine marble benches and the great lifted leaves of palms. She was a little dazed by crowded impressions—impressions of height and spaciousness and richness and opening vistas, a great marble stairway and a landing where there was an immense designed window in clear leaded glass, rugs, tapestries, mirrors, polished wood and great chairs with brocaded seats and carved dark backs. Two little girls, heavy, well-groomed little girls one spectacled and good-natured-looking, the other rather pretty, with a mass of fair hair, were coming down the stairs with an eager little German woman. They kissed their mother, much diverted by the mad rushes and leaps of the two white poodles who accompanied them. "'These are my babies, Miss Paget," said Mrs. Carbolt. "'This is Victoria, who's eleven, and Harriet, who's six, and these are Monsieur— Monsieur Patel and Monsieur Michet,' said Victoria, introducing the dogs with entire ease of manner." The German woman said something forcibly, and Margaret understood the child's reply in that tongue. Mamma won't blame you, Fraulein. Harry, and I wish them to come down. Presently they all went up in a luxuriously fitted little lift, Margaret being carried to the fourth floor to her own rooms, to which a little maid escorted her. When the maid had gone, Margaret walked to the door and tried it. For no reason whatever, it was shut. Her heart was beating violently. She walked into the middle of the room and looked at herself in the mirror and laughed a little breathless laugh. Then she took off her hat carefully, and went into the bedroom that was beyond her sitting-room, and hung her hat in a fragrant white closet that was entirely and delightfully empty, and her gloves and bag in the empty big top drawer of a great mahogany bureau. Then she went back to the mirror and looked hard at her own beauty reflected in it, and laughed her little laugh again. "'It's too good! It's too much!' she whispered. She investigated her domain, after quelling a wild desire to sit down at the beautiful desk and try the new pens, the crystal inkwell, and the heavy paper with its severely engraved address, and a long letter to mother. There was a tiny upright piano in the sitting-room, and at the fireplace a deep thick rug, and an immense leather armchair. A clock in crystal and gold flanked by two crystal candlesticks had the center of the mantelpiece. On the little round mahogany center table was a lamp, with a wonderful mosaic shade. A little bookcase was filled with books and magazines. Margaret went to one of the three windows and looked down upon the bare trees and the snow in the park and upon the rumbling green omnibuses, all bathed in bright chilly sunlight. A mahogany door with a crystal knob opened into the bedroom, where there was a polished floor and more rugs and a gay rosy wallpaper and a great bed with a lace cover. Beyond was a bathroom, all enamel, marble, glass and nickel plate, with heavy monogrammed towels on the rack, three new little washcloths sealed in glazed paper, three new toothbrushes and paper cases, and a cake of famous English soap just out of its wrapper. Over the whole little suite there brooded an exquisite order. Not a particle of dust broke the shining surfaces of the mahogany. Not a fallen leaf lay under the great bowl of roses on the desk. Now and then the radiator clanked in the stress. It was hard to believe in that warmth and silence that a cold winter wind was blowing outside, and that snow still lay on the ground. Margaret resting luxuriously in the big chair, became thoughtful. Presently she went into the bedroom and knelt down beside the bed. "'Oh, Lord, let me stay here,' she prayed, her face in her hands. "'I want so to stay. Make me a success.' Never was a prayer more generously answered. Miss Paget was an instant success. In something less than two months she became indispensable to Mrs. Carbolt, and was a favorite with everyone, from the rather stolid, silent head of the house, on to the least of the maids. She was so busy, so unaffected, so sympathetic, that her sudden rise in favor was resented by no one. The butler told her his troubles. The French maid dutifully declared, but that from its Paget she would not for one second remain. The children went cheerfully even to the dentist with their adored Miss Peggy. They soon preferred her escort to Matini or Zoo to that of any other person. Margaret also escorted Mrs. Carbolt's mother, a magnificent old lady, on shopping expeditions, and attended the meetings of charity boards for Mrs. Carbolt. With notes and invitations, account-books and check-books, dinner-lists, and interviews with caterers, decorators, and florists, Margaret's time was full, but she loved every moment of her work, and gloried in her increasing usefulness. At first there were some dark days, notably the dreadful one upon which Margaret somehow, somewhere, dropped the box containing the new hat she was bringing home for Harriet and kept the little girl out in the cold afternoon air while the motor made a fruitless trip back to the milliners. Harriet contracted a cold, and Harriet's mother for the first time spoke severely to Margaret. There was another bad day when Margaret artlessly omitted to Mrs. Pierre Polk at the telephone that Mrs. Carbolt was not engaged for dinner that evening, thus obliging her employer to snub the lady or accept a distasteful invitation to dine. And there was a most uncomfortable occasion when Mr. Carbolt, not at all at his best, stumbled in upon his wife with some angry observations meant for her ear alone, and Margaret, busy with accounts in a window recess, was unknown to them both a distressed witness. "'Another time, Miss Paget," said Mrs. Carbolt coldly, upon Margaret's appearing scarlet cheek between the curtains, "'don't oblige me to ascertain that you are not within hearing before feeling sure of privacy. Will you finish those bills upstairs, if you please?' Margaret went upstairs with a burning heart, cast her bills haphazard on her own desk, and flung herself, dry-eyed and furious, on the bed. She was far too angry to think, but lay there for perhaps twenty minutes with her brain whirling. Finally rising, she brushed up her hair, straightened her collar, and, full of tremendous resolves, stepped into her little sitting-room to find Mrs. Carbolt in the big chair serenely eyeing her. "'I'm so sorry I spoke so, Peggy,' said her employer generously. "'But the truth is, I am not myself when, when Mr. Carbolt... The little hesitating appeal in her voice completely disarmed Margaret. In the end, the little episode cemented the rapidly growing friendship between the two women, Mrs. Carbolt seeming to enjoy the relief of speaking rather freely of what was the one real trial in her life. "'My husband has always had too much money,' she said, in her positive way. "'At one time we were afraid that he would absolutely ruin his health by this habit of his. "'His physician and I took him around the world.' "'I left Victoria, just a baby with mother. "'And for two years he was never out of my sight. "'It has never been so bad since. "'You know yourself how reliable he usually is,' she finished cheerfully, "'unless some of the other men get a hold of him.' "'As the months went on, Margaret came to admire her employer more and more. "'There was not an indolent impulse in Mrs. Carbolt's entire composition. "'Smooth-haired, fresh-skinned, and spotless linen, "'she began the day at eight o'clock, full of energy and interest.' She had daily sessions with butler and housekeeper, shopped with Margaret and the children, walked about her greenhouse or her country garden with her skirts pinned up, and had tulips potted and stonework continued. She was prominent in several clubs, a famous dinner-giver. She took a personal interest in all her servants, loved to settle their quarrels, and have three or four of them up on the carpet at once, tearful and explanatory. Margaret kept for her a list of some two hundred friends— whose birthdays were to be marked with carefully selected gifts. She pleased Mrs. Carbolt by her open amazement at the latter's vitality. The girl observed that her employer could not visit any institution without making a few vigorous suggestions as she went about. She accompanied her checks to the organized charities, and her charity flowed only through absolutely reliable channels, with little friendly advisory letters. She liked the democratic attitude for herself, even while promptly snubbing any such tendency in children or friends and she told Margaret that she only used her coat of arms on house linen, stationery, and livery, because her husband and mother liked it. "'It's, of course, rather nice to realize that one comes from one of the oldest of the colonial families,' she would say, the Carterets of Maryland, you know, but it's all such bosh. And she urged Margaret to claim her own right to family honors. "'You're a Quincy, my dear. Don't let that woman intimidate you. She didn't remember that her grandfather was a captain until her husband made his money.' and where the family portraits come from I don't know, but I think there's a man on Fourth Avenue who does them,' she would say. Or, "'I know all about Lily Reynolds, Peggy. Her father was as rich as she says, and I dare say the crest is theirs. But ask her what her maternal grandmother did for a living, if you want to shut her up.' Other people she would condemn with a mere whispered, coal, or, patent and bathtubs!' behind her fan." and it pleased her to tell people that her treasure of a secretary had the finest blood in the world in her veins. Margaret was much admired, and Margaret was her discovery, and she liked to emphasize her find. Mrs. Carbolt's mother, a tremulous, pompous old lady, unwittingly aided the impression by taking an immense fancy to Margaret, and by telling her few intimates and the older women among her daughter's friends that the girl was a perfect little thoroughbred. When the CARBOLTS filled their house with the reckless and noisy company they occasionally affected, Mrs. Carteret would say majestically to Margaret, You and I have nothing in common with this riffraff, my dear. Summer came, and Margaret headed a happy letter Bar Harbour. Two months later all Weston knew that Margaret Paget was going abroad for a year with those rich people, and had written her mother from the Lusitania. Letters from London, from Germany, from Holland, from Russia followed. We are going to put the girls at school in Switzerland and, ahem, winter on the Riviera, and then Rome for Holy Week, she wrote. She was presently home again, chattering French and German to amuse her father, teaching Becky a little Italian song to match her little Italian costume. It's wonderful to me how you get along with all these rich people, Mark, said her mother admiringly during Margaret's home visit. Mrs. Paget was watering the dejected-looking side garden with a straggling length of hose, Margaret and Julie shelling peas on the side steps. Margaret laughed, colouring a little. "'Why, we're just as good as they are, Mother.' Mrs. Padgett drenched a dried little lump of carnations. "'We're as good,' she admitted, "'but we're not as rich or as travelled. "'We haven't the same ideas. "'We belong to a different class.' "'Oh, no, we don't, Mother,' Margaret said quickly. "'Who are the Cardbolts except for their money? "'Why, Mrs. Carteret, for all her family, "'isn't half the aristocrat Grandma was.' "'And you—you could be a daughter of the Officers of the Revolution, Mother!' "'Why, Mark, I never heard that,' her mother protested, "'cleaning the sprinkler with a hairpin. "'Mother,' Julie said eagerly, "'Great-Grandfather Quincy!' "'Oh, Grandpa,' said Mrs. Paget. "'Yes, Grandpa was a paymaster. "'He was on Governor Hancock's staff. "'They used to call him Major. "'But, Mark—' "'She turned off the water, "'holding her skirts away from the combination of mud and dust underfoot— "'That's a very silly way to talk, dear. "'Money does make a difference. "'It does no good to go back into the past "'and say that this one was a judge and that one a major. "'We must live our lives where they are.' "'Margaret had not lost a wholesome respect "'for her mother's opinion in the two years she had been away, "'but she had lived in a very different world "'and was full of new ideas. "'Mother, do you mean to tell me "'that if you and Dad hadn't had a perfect pack of children "'and moved so much, and if Dad, say had been in that oil deal that he said he wished he had the money for, and we still lived in the brick house, that you wouldn't be in every way the equal of Mrs. Carbolt? If you mean as far as money goes, Mark, no. We might have been well to do as country people go, I suppose. Exactly, said Margaret. And you would have been as well off as dozens of the people who are going about in society this minute. It's the merest chance that we aren't rich. Just for instance, father's father had twelve children, didn't he? And left them, how much was it? About three thousand apiece, and a godsend it was, too, said her mother reflectively. But suppose dad had been the only child, mother, Margaret persisted, he would have had-he would have had the whole thirty-six thousand dollars, I suppose, Mark, or more, said Margaret, for Grandfather Paget was presumably spending money on them all the time. Well, but Mark said mrs Paget, laughing as at the vagaries of a small child, Father Paget did have twelve children. "'And Daddy and I ate,' she sighed, as always, "'at the thought of the little son who was gone. "'And there you are. "'You can't get away from that, dear.' "'Margaret did not answer. "'But she thought to herself that very few people "'held Mother's views of this subject. "'Mrs. Carbolt's friends, for example, "'did not accept increasing cares in this resigned fashion. "'Their lives were ideally pleasant and harmonious "'without the complicated responsibilities of large families. "'They drifted from season to season without care.' always free, always gay, always irreproachably gowned. In winter there were daily meetings, for shopping, for luncheon, bridge, or tea. Summer was filled with a score of country visits. There were motor trips for weekends, dinners, theaters, and the opera to fill the evenings, German or singing lessons, manicure, misuse, and dressmaker to crowd the morning hours all the year round. Margaret learned from these exquisite fragrant creatures the art of being perpetually fresh and charming. "'learned their methods of caring for their own beauty, "'learned to love rare toilet waters and powders, "'fine embroidered linen and silk stockings. "'There was no particular strain upon her wardrobe now, "'nor upon her purse. "'She could be as dainty as she liked. "'She listened to the conversations that went on about her, "'sometimes critical or unconvinced, "'more often admiring, "'and as she listened she found slowly, "'but certainly her own viewpoint. "'She was not mercenary. "'She would not marry a man just for his money, she decided.' but just as certainly she would not marry a man who could not give her a comfortable establishment, a position in society. The man seemed in no hurry to appear. As a matter of fact, the men whom Margaret met were openly anxious to evade marriage, even with the wealthy girls of their own set. Margaret was not concerned. She was too happy to miss the love-making element. The men she saw were not of a type to inspire a sensible, busy, happy girl with any very deep feeling and it was with generous and perfect satisfaction that she presently had news of julie's happy engagement julie was to marry a young and popular doctor the only child of one of weston's most prominent families the little sister's letter bubbled joyously with news harry's father is going to build us a little house on the big place the darling wrote julie and we will stay with them until it is done but in five years harry says we will have a real honeymoon in europe think of going to europe as a married woman "'Mark, I wish you could see my ring. It is a beauty. "'But don't tell Mother I was silly enough to write about it.' Margaret delightedly selected a little collection of things for Julie's trousseau. A pair of silk stockings, a scarf she never had worn, a lace petticoat, pink silk for a waist. Mrs. Carbolt, coming in in the midst of these preparations, insisted upon adding so many other things, from trunks and closets, that Margaret was speechless with delight scarves cobwebby silks and uncut lengths embroidered lingerie still in the tissue paper of paris shops parasols gloves and lengths of lace she piled all of them into margaret's arms Julie's trousseau was consequently quite the most beautiful that weston had ever seen and the little sister's cloudless joy made the fortnight margaret spent at home at the time of the wedding a very happy one it was a time of rush and flurry laughter and tears of roses and girls in white gowns but some ten days before the wedding "'Julie and Margaret happened to be alone for a peaceful hour over their sewing, "'and fell to talking seriously. "'You see, our house will be small,' said Julie, "'but I don't care. "'We don't intend to stay in Weston all our lives. "'Don't breathe this to anyone, Mark, "'but if Harry does as well as he's doing now for two years, "'we'll rent the little house, "'and we're going to Baltimore for a year for a special course. "'Then you know he's devoted to Dr. McKim. "'He always calls him the chief. "'Then he thinks maybe McKim will work him into his practice.' He's getting old, you know, and that means New York. Oh, Jew! Really? I don't see why not, Julie said dimpling. Harry's crazy to do it. He says he doesn't propose to live and die in Weston. McKim could throw any amount of hospital practice his way to begin with, and you know Harry'll have something, and the house'll rent. I'm crazy, said Julie enthusiastically, to take one of those lovely old apartments on Washington Square, and to meet a few nice people, you know— and really make something of my life. Mrs. Carbolton and I will spin down for you every few days, Margaret said, falling readily in with the plan. I'm glad you're not going to simply get into a rut the way some of the other girls have, cooking and babies and nothing else, she said. I think that's an awful mistake, Julie said placidly. Starting in right is so important. I don't want to be a male drudge like Ethel or Louise. They may like it. I don't. Of course, this isn't a matter to talk of she went on, coloring a little. I never breathe this to mother. But it's perfectly absurd to pretend that girls don't discuss these things. I've talked to Betty and Louise. We all talk about it, you know. And Louise says they haven't had one free second since Buddy came. She can't keep one maid, and she says the idea of two maids eating their three meals a day, whether she's home or not, makes her perfectly sick. Someone's got to be with him every second, even now when he's four, to see that he doesn't fall off something or put things in his mouth. And as Louise says, it means no more weekend trips. You can't go visiting overnight. You can't even go for a day's drive or a day on the beach without extra clothes for the baby, a mosquito net and umbrella for the baby, milk packed and ice for the baby, somebody trying to get the baby to take his nap. It's awful. It would end our Baltimore plan, and that means New York. And New York means everything to Harry and me, finished Julie, contentedly, flattening a finished bit of embroidery on her knee and regarding it complacently. "'Well, I think you're right,' Margaret approved. "'Things are different now from what they were in Mother's Day.' "'And look at Mother,' Julie said. "'One long slavery. "'Life's too short to wear yourself out that way.' Mrs. Paget's sunny cheerfulness was sadly shaken when the actual moment of parting with the exquisite, rose-hatted, grey-flocked Julie came. Her face worked pitifully in its effort to smile. Her tall figure, awkward in an ill-made, unbecoming new silk, seemed to droop tenderly over the little clinging wife.' margaret stirred by the sight of tears on her mother's face stood with an arm about her when the bride and groom drove away in the afternoon sunshine i'm going to stay with you until she gets back she reminded her mother and you know you've always said you wanted the girls to marry mother urged mr paget rebecca felt a felicitous moment to ask if she and the boy could have the rest of the ice cream divide it evenly said mrs paget wiping her eyes and smiling Yes, I know, daddy dear. I'm an ungrateful woman. I suppose your turn will come next, Mark, and then I don't know what I will do. Chapter three